Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Howard White Marshall about his book, Play Me Something Quick and Devilish, Old-Time Fiddlers in Missouri, published in 2012 by the University of Missouri Press. I admit that I know very little about old-time fiddle music. Indeed, one of the things I like best about doing these interviews is reading books and talking with authors about music genres that have escaped my attention. Play Me Something Quick and Devilish is such a book. Howard Marshall is such an author. In the book, Marshall takes us through a grand tour of the history and geography of old-time fiddle music. He begins with a discussion of regional fiddle styles in modern-day Missouri, the Ozark style, Little Dixie style, and North Missouri style. He then leads us through a history of the settling of Missouri with fiddle playing as the focal point. We learn about the old French district and the importance of two cups of bouillon, taken from a stolen chicken, of course. We learn of the importance of fiddling for Thomas Jefferson and the journey of Lewis and Clark. Marshall tells us of old-stock American, Scottish, Irish, and Scottish fiddlers, such as Art Galbraith. On to African-American old-time fiddlers, such as J.W. Postlewaite. German emigrant fiddlers playing waltzes and polkas, and the superstardom of one Jenny Lind. And on and on, the importance of fiddle playing among Civil War troops, both Union and Confederate. Irish emigrant fiddlers, Cherokee fiddlers, and on. Marshall finishes his story with a discussion of the influence of ragtime and jazz on modern 20th century fiddle playing. In all, in playing something quick and devilish, Howard Marshall helps keep alive a little-known, outside of specialized circles anyway, genre of music. It's a book that serves as a reference and a history, a story and a catalog. Howard White Marshall lives near Fulton, Missouri, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Howard, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hello to you, Matt, and thanks a lot for calling. <laughs> Why don't we begin uh, with a, a biography of yourself? Tell us a little bit about you know where you come from and, and what you're up to in life. Well, that's a big question, but uh, I'm a retired professor of art history and archaeology at the uh, University of Missouri in Columbia. Uh, I worked previously at the Library of Congress for several years and the Smithsonian and other places. And uh, I am from Missouri, so I came back to the University of Missouri uh, in the early 80s. And uh, so I'm kind of back in my home territory where my family has been, you know, since coming from Virginia, you know, North Uh Carolina, Kentucky, 1830s. Uh So uh, that's probably all you need on me. Uh, uh, I I I got from the book that you must you play the fiddle you play the guitar you play both. Well, I play about everything with strings on it. Uh, <laughs> and I, you, you know, I'm from a family of fiddle players, and one side of my family going back to Virginia in about 1830. So I caught the the genes, I guess you'd say, in my generation. But uh-huh. uh, I had a grandfather who was kind of the, the fiddler, you know, in the family, and he, I thought, I can never do that. So I played everything else <laughs> as a younger person. You know, in high school, I played plectrum banjo and guitar and then five-string banjo and played bluegrass mandolin for years and 
played in bluegrass bands in graduate school, and and finally, you know, the fiddle caught up with me. <laughs> uh-huh. And like a lot of people who play everything else, once you you catch the the fiddle bug, it sort of uh, won't let go. And, <laughs> so I've been playing the fiddle ever since. Uh huh. And I, I see in your biography you've. You've written uh, a number of books or edited a number of books. For instance, mm-hmm. the, your official biography says you wrote a book about barns in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what made you decide to write uh, this book? Well, I've uh, my official, you know, academic work, if you could put it that way, uh, has uh, you know since the 1970s been in vernacular architecture and material culture. I was trained by Henry Glassy at Indiana University. So I do old farm buildings mainly. And this was just, you know, one of the books that I've written uh, about traditional buildings here in the state of Missouri. Uh-huh. But yeah. specifically, what, why did you write a book about old-time fiddlers? About fiddlers? Yeah. Well, uh, I've been, you know, interested in this, in this stuff, in this music, uh, and really oftentimes more interested in the people and the stories, you know, the backstory, you might say, behind the music uh, since I was a child. And I'm just lucky to be born into a family of storytellers and people that like history and literature and so on. So I was always fascinated by old-timers telling me, you know, what's the story behind the title 8th of January or you know, muddy road to Moberly or some tune like that. What's the what that? What's the story behind that? So, I began writing, you know, about these things in the 70s and would publish an article here and there. And uh, but you know, pretty much as a sideline to uh, my academic work, which was, as I mentioned, you know, chiefly uh, vernacular buildings, historic preservation, folk art, you know, material culture. So. Uh, but it's kind of a sideline that's been developed all those years. And as a lot of people do who, you know, uh, get older, <laughs> you know, those, those articles kind of accumulate and eventually you decide, you know, really I should just go ahead and write a book. Uh, and so I did. Mm-hmm. Some, some of the chapters uh, grew out of articles and journals and uh, other chapters are, you know, just, uh, you know, developed just for the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, is there something uh, unique about fiddle music in Missouri, other than you grew up there and, and mm-hmm. it's what you know best, but does it have a special place in, in the, the history of fiddle music? Well, that's a great question, Matt. Uh, it's often assumed that Missouri fiddling is kind of different in, in some way from other kinds of fiddling. If you live in Utah, you, I'm sure you know the, the story of the West is in some measure a story of Missouri and people passing through Missouri up the rivers or uh, jumping off the rivers at, at Westport or St. Joseph and heading out on various trails uh, you know, to the West and Pacific Northwest. So being on the Mississippi River as well as the Missouri River with, with key French settlements in the 1700s, you know, the first European settlers on this side of the Mississippi River, and you know, just all these historical elements around St. Louis kind of made Missouri, Missouri kind of a funnel, you know, for people moving west. And 
lots of different people moved west, but as they moved west, you know, they many people stayed in Missouri and established particular communities, you know, of French-speaking people, you know, south of St. Louis and, you know, the very strong communities of German-speaking Europeans and the old Scotch-Irish and there's, you know, communities of Welsh coal miners in North Missouri. So actually sounds kind of like the history of Utah, doesn't it? But, A little bit. Uh, you know, <laughs> but maybe that's the history of the Midwest and the West particularly. Uh, but those fiddle traditions, you know, do kind of all go up the river, you know, and, and further on uh, in a in a time period when fiddle styles were starting to kind of, you know, coalesce at different times in the 19th century. And uh, plus Missouri, you know, seems to, uh, by most uh, by most accounts, be a place where ragtime and early jazz developed, uh, you know, from Scotland, Joplin on down. So you add that, you know, and then the publication of, you know, the, all the Tin Pan Alley composers in St. Louis before New York became important and, you know, Missouri becomes a state that has a lot of interesting threads that kind of weave together in the fiddle music, you know, that uh, kind of, you know, makes it an important place where, you know, whether there's anything truly distinctive about Missouri styles of fiddling, I don't think so, uh, but you, one can, as in, you know, Utah or Georgia or Connecticut, you know, if you listen to the music for 40, 50 years, you can begin to kind of discern patterns and profiles that relate to certain communities in a place and certain cultural geographic regions in a place. Uh, you know, so, in, you know, you can kind of discern basic approaches to playing dance music. And uh, one can see that, you know, clearly, I think, in... In that, in the book, in the CD that comes with the book, you know, that has a sampler of about 33 different Missouri fiddlers from all over the state. So, uh, and the book doesn't uh, include modern stuff either. So, it it kind of quits in the 1920s. So, you know, we have a lot to come, don't we? We have bluegrass and western swing, and you know, the folk song revival and so-called festival styles of fiddling that. You know, Cajun music comes later, and, you know, so uh, there's a lot of fiddling that isn't in the book. So, you know, hopefully the next book will take us through the 20th century. <laughs> so That's not really a good answer to your question. Uh, uh, that was a fa- <laughs> fabulous answer. Um, but before we get any farther, um, I, I, I hope it's not too obvious a question, but what is fiddle music? How, how is it distinctive from, you know, other, other types of music played on a violin? Sure. Well, that's a great, great question and an important question. Uh, I approach it, you know, uh, from the perspective of people dancing. Uh, to me, to to play the fiddle means to play music to make people want to dance or to help people dance. If it isn't danceable music, to me, in, in American tradition, in Midwestern tradition, in Missouri tradition, to bring it down to us, uh, it isn't fiddling. It might be nice concert music, you know, like in bluegrass music where you're just putting on a show and nobody cares, you know, whether they dance or not, you know. Uh, 
but for the traditions of the 19th century particularly, this music is so wedded to dancing that without the music being in a danceable tempo and, and suitable, uh, you know, it just isn't fiddling. I think that's a huge difference between what we might call, you know, old-time fiddling and, and many other kinds of music made on violin. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know why that makes uh, makes the distinction uh, work for you, but uh, certainly it's different from a lot of performance-oriented music like modern jazz, right. fiddling, for example, which you can't dance to. In fact, nobody wants you to dance to, <laughs> you know, past the 1930s, I mean, you know, in the modern right. era. And classical music, which is music where you expect to sit down and be quiet and, and uh, you know, clap at the right times. And uh, that's not the principle behind fiddling. And uh, it's, it's a huge distinction and terribly important, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Right. I suppose there are some, say, modern variations of country music and even bluegrass where people do dance, but it's still not old-time fiddle music. Is that right? Well, that... Uh, and, they, and they use a fiddle. Yeah, yes, yes and no. Yes and no. Certainly, if you look at, you know, Western Swing, let's say, which is dance music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Bob Wills and Milton Brown and all the people that came after, particularly Milton Brown is, to me, the most important in that period. Uh, that is founded in old-time fiddling. Many of the tunes carry into... Western swing and today's country music. You hear some of the same tunes played, and it and it's still danceable. Uh, but uh, you know the music does change after you know Western swing uh, becomes imbued with the music. You know, fiddling of Joe Venuti particularly, uh, and gets so much jazz into it. But Western swing is still danceable. That's mm-hmm. different from modern jazz. So. So you can, you know, if you listen to Western swing bands, you can sometimes hear old-time fiddle tunes, and people do dance to it. Um, and if you talk to the fiddlers, quite often, uh, the older fiddlers particularly, they can, in the back room, they could play a, a real nice billy in the low ground or, you know, leather britches or an, an honest-to-God old-time fiddle tune, as well as the more, you know, contemporary, souped-up, stylized, overproduced, Nashville stuff. Mm-hmm. So, 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 getting uh, to your research for the book as an historian, um, I imagine uh, much of it you find it was, is an oral history, right? And and how yeah. did you go about doing this research? Well, yeah, it's, uh, this is music that's ear music, you know, as opposed to existing on on pages in chicken tracks. So it goes from person to person. It is an oral and an aural tradition. So, you know, you depend on that process of transmission to keep the music alive and to keep it fresh. And uh, that presents, you know, interesting questions in research. Um, you have problems of trying to figure out where the music came from. Uh, if you don't have a particular manuscript, you know, that's signed by... A composer uh, that presents you interesting uh, can be obstacles, but it can be opportunities also. Uh, but as I've done the research for this book, I have 
actually travel to you know different places to try to track down some archival materials in in Ireland and Scotland particularly and uh, it's kind of interesting that we have you know 10 or 15 American fiddle tunes that I like to call ironclads that's John Hartford's term but I really like that these are tunes like Soldier's Joy and Sally Gooden that you could recognize any place in the world played by any kind of band <laughs> in any instrument you'd know hey that is Sally Gooden there's something about those those tunes, and they're inherited through many generations, passed from person to person. Uh, and occasionally you can find sources for those tunes in manuscripts in Europe uh, that may not be the actual composer, but may be the person who first wrote it down. And then that tune, and we have a tune, uh, for example, called, well, it's called by 35, 36 different titles. Lead Out is the title that most people know it by uh, Tommy Jackson used when he recorded in the 1950s. So most bluegrass and and uh, book fiddlers would call it lead out because that's how it appears in books now. But uh, that's a tune that you know, like I said, has 30 close to 35, 36 at least different titles around the United States and North America. That's 15 or 20 different titles in Missouri and. Uh, if you look, and I found a, we found some manuscripts in uh, Scotland that indicate the tune was written down about in the 1750s, and, and you know, and called something like Miss Farquharson's Reel, and another version of it in the 1700s is uh, Lady Botton Scott's Reel. Well, you know, who can remember that? Nobody can remember that. <laughs> and uh, there were such great tunes that just went into pe- that part of people's brains that remember music. It's kind of like trying to figure out who composed Happy Birthday. Nobody knows and really who who cares. The fact is anybody on the planet can hum a little bit of Happy Birthday the way any old-time fiddler who is really an honest-to-God old-time fiddler can take a stagger at Soldier's Joy or Sally Gooden. Uh, otherwise, I don't, wouldn't think of them as fiddle players in speaking of American old-time fiddling. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the research process leads you to some big surprises, and one of the surprises is that a great uh, portion of tunes that we assume are ancient melodies from the precipitate, from the moors, uh, come from, uh, you know, Tin Pan Alley, either early big moments of composition during the Civil War period or later, literally, Tin Pan Alley in the... New York City. A lot of tunes that we think are, you know, like you know, old-time tunes are composed tunes, but they were so immediately popular and amazing. Most of them developed as sheet music for piano players. Um, you know, those tunes are just assumed now to be ancient melodies, but they aren't. They're composed in 1898 or 1915. And we have a lot of those that fiddlers play every day, you know, and just assume they're the same as Soldier's Joy, that they come from, you know, from Scotland in the 1800s, but they don't. (laughs) So that, to me, was kind of a surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's an important surprise because it just reminds you of the complexity and all the interlacings, you know, that traditional music actually has, you know, that... uh, 
really there's no one source for the music. The sources are are plenteous, you know, all over the place too. So it's interesting as as this has, I guess, solidified or crystallized into a genre of music called old time fiddling. In your book, in a number of places, you bring up um, arguments and disagreements among people about whether it's truly old time fiddling, and I'm I'm thinking back to the section on um, on uh, uh, listen to the mockingbird that you yeah. write in chapter six and the the inclusion of the bird sounds. In fact, I went to YouTube and looked up a few of them from you know fiddle contests, and in, yes, indeed, they put in the little bird sounds in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's a, that's a great example of a composed tune. You know that uh, there's a lot of arguments about that. Uh, you know. Some fiddlers hate that tune, other, others love it. Most people who don't like it are just somehow, you know, subliminally resentful because they can't play it. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the mere fact that every time you play anywhere, somebody in the audience is going to say, play, listen to the Mockingbird, that's telling you something, I think, about, you know, that tune is one of those tunes that caught on in people's imaginations and stayed there. And, uh, you know, the bird calls have probably been in there a very long time uh, since the Civil War period, um, but usually whistled or played on something else. And finally, some vaudeville fiddler or minstrel fiddler was so good that he figured out how to, hey, Alice, just play these on the high strings on the violin and see what happens. And it kind of became part of it. And of course, contest fiddlers resent it, too, because it, you know, it's considered to be a trick tune, although I don't think it is. It's actually a, a great tune, but very difficult to play well. <laughs> and the, the bird calls are actually hard to do, to me anyway, technically speaking. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy about what is old time and what isn't. And mm-hmm. a lot of people would say, listen to the Mockingbird isn't an old time fiddle tune because it's, to their minds, it might be a little bit too slick and a little bit too fancy and demanding of uh, violin skills that most of us do not have. And a lot of people are so conservative, you know, or chauvinistic that they would say, well, that ain't old-time fiddling. That's too slick, uh-huh. which is bunk, you know. Uh, but interesting, you know, in terms of society and culture and how people perceive of uh, music, you know, what people how they identify music as good or bad, you know, depends on their own personalities and understanding. So, so, so uh, an important part of, of the history of this music are are these fiddle contests, where and they they make these rules about uh, what kind, what you can play and what you can't play. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Well, tell us tell us about contests generally and their importance. Oh, sure. Well, fiddlers contests have been around since. Oh, I don't know, at least the 1700s. Uh, we have some, I guess the earliest reference that so far we've been able to find in, in colonial America is a fiddler's contest in Virginia in about, I don't know, I think 1736 or something like that. Uh, and in those early contests, uh, there was great debate over who should play and who shouldn't. In some of those early 1700s contests in Virginia, uh, the winners would be students of the local, you know, immigrant Italian violin teacher. Well, so is it fair, you know, for a person who has 
violin skills and perfect intonation and beautiful classical bowing who sounds better to the uninitiated than the rough and ready great hoedown fiddler who makes people want to dance. I mean, who in that, who's the real fiddler there? So, I mean, this, this controversy has been around since the first contest we know about, you know, on, on record in Virginia. And, uh, so ever since then, people have been trying to say what you can and cannot do in a fiddler's contest and what, how the judging will be done uh, fairly and so on. And uh, that's quite interesting because it, it's never been fair and cannot be fair because it's, you know, it's more like judging Miss America than Olympic swimming. You know, there's no mm-hmm. button to push where a digital clock you know, made in Switzerland tells you who won. It's subliminal. It's impressionistic. So that's one reason fiddlers' contests are continuing uh, to be controversial. But by the same token, they're they're very important arenas. You know, just just like uh, circuses. You know, they're important. <laughs> just and like circuses. Yeah, they are just like circuses, and you know, the fanciest elephant, you know, might get festooned with the best ribbons. But that might not be the smartest elephant or even the hardest working elephant in the circus. So, you know, it's it's quite interesting. I go to contests myself. I actually like them. A lot of people hate them. I like them because that's where fiddlers hang out. You know, mm-hmm. If you want to meet fiddlers, go and hang out backstage and in the parking lot and, you know, where the jam sessions break out and uh, where the stress is off and the microphone is off and people can relax and, Fiddling actually happens, as opposed to the four or five minutes, you know, on stage with the bright lights and people staring at you and trying to catch every tiny little mistake you might make. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. that's part of the problem with the contest. But mm-hmm. they're getting to be more and more like violin recitals as we go along, which is not good, but that's how it is. So your your book is, is organized. Uh, around region and especially, I think, what, what we might refer to as ethnicities in, in the history of Missouri and even in the history of the country, really. Yeah, really, um, yes, yeah. Um, so why don't we start? We've spent 20 minutes, 25 minutes now on Chapter 1. <laughs> but, I mean, on the intro. We've only done the intro so far. But uh, so, so tell us a little bit. Let's start with Chapter 1 and tell us about the importance of, of French Missouri in, in the history of fiddle music. Well, that's uh, kind of a foggy area to move into. The, we, if, if you're going to talk about the history of the Western United States, you have to talk about the French, you know, coming down from Canada and settling along the Mississippi River, who, you know, were the first European permanent settlers, unless you wish to count northern New Mexico, which I do count, uh, but in this part of the, the map, we talk about the French people, and they were famous for their fiddle music, and they loved dancing and uh, what they call balls, B-A-L-S, in, in, the, in their own dialect. And uh, these were great parties, you know, with dancing and good food and, uh, you know, many romances sparked over the course of an evening. Uh, but we know almost nothing about how the music actually sounded. So here's the tough part. You know, you'll visit with people about French fiddle music and 
what we know today, all we know today, is Cajun fiddling in American fiddling, which is nothing like what that could have been because Cajun music really didn't even evolve until the 20th century. So people just assume you're going to play, you know, soft stroke, you know, Cajun, Cajun tunes if you do a program on the French in Missouri. But really that's not it. We know that's not it. <laughs> what it was, we can't really say either. We do have recordings of some French-American fiddle players who were born in the late 1800s and recorded in the middle uh, 1900s. And to my ear, there are some unusual tunes they play. Uh, but the violin style, to me, sounds more like the predominant moves and clean school of uh, Missouri fiddling or American fiddling. It doesn't sound like soft stroke Ozark fiddling. There's nothing like Cajun fiddling. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what my research has told me. You know, there, I'm sure there are others really, who probably know more about that than I do. That's just from what I could determine in my my own, uh, you know, work and my own, really, my own opinion of it, because we have no proofs, you know, and there's no, uh, you know, uh, Skype to show us those guys playing in 1780. Uh, no iPod, no Internet. So, you know, we don't know for sure. And uh, we just have travelers' accounts of going to balls and describing the dances and so on. So it's a very tough thing to talk about. I do have one uh, uh, tune on the CD with the book from Lloyd Lalamandiere, who is a descendant of those 1700s uh, Canadian, French-Canadian settlers. He came, family came to be stonemasons in uh, the St. Genevieve area, the earliest families to settle there. And he plays tunes, and he is the descendant of many generations of fiddlers. I can't hear anything in his tunes that really, to me, sound French. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we understand it today, and nothing in it that sounds like Cajun music, but he'll play a tune and say, here's a Cajun tune, and play a Cajun tune that is from a 1950s country music record. Mm -hmm. So that's just how complicated it is when you, when you do oral history and listen to what people tell you and then try to figure out the backstory, you know, and the, it's, it is, in fact, archaeology. <laughs> it's working uh, backwards through the layers of time, you know, which mm -hmm. is kind of how we have to operate. It's very interesting, but I can offer no, you know, earth-shaking conclusions about the French other than to say that I'm pretty sure it isn't what today we think of as Cajun fiddling. <laughs> so you break up... Uh you distinguish three types of playing styles in Missouri, and I, I think they're roughly broken up by region. You have the, the Ozark style, the Little Dixie style, and the North Missouri style. Can you tell us about those? Sure. Um, through the years, you know, as people have tried to write about this, uh, really beginning with Vance Randolph, you know, back in the 40s, people have tried to sort out the styles in Missouri fiddling, and uh, I first want to say that there are probably as many styles as there are fiddlers because everyone brings his or her particular ingenuity and you know memory and and nuances into the music that's good and that's important uh, but but as you build out from that you can sort of distinguish 
two or three big piles of, of fiddle music uh, that kind of uh, make you think about how do you distinguish these things. And we're talking about dance music, so if everybody is playing Soldier's Joy, everybody's going to play it so people can square dance to it. That's number one. Soldier's Joy is a real, a breakdown, a hoedown for square dancing. So then you start thinking about the noting. What's the melody like in the left hand? And uh, that is... That can be roughly similar across all kinds of lines. But when you get to the right hand, which is the bowing hand, that's where the real you know, personality of the fiddler comes out. And that's, to me, where styles in Missouri, at least, can be, can be uh, grouped into these big piles. And I guess I would say, in those three, the Central Missouri or Little Dixie style, I call it, and the North Missouri style are very much alike. Their approach is melody uh, and with some soft strokes, but sort of the opposite of that, of that in a way would be what I characterize perhaps too glibly as the Ozark style, uh, which emphasizes uh, the shuffle bow and jig bowing. They call it jig bowing in the Ozarks or short bow style which is the soft stroke, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da sound, you know, that is so important for people dancing and is what what the uh, average person thinks of as when they hear that, they think old-time fiddling, that da-da-da-da-da, that sound, you know, which is uh, through, the, through the bowing in a shuffle bow. And that's different from the approach that we take in Little Dixie in North Missouri, which is more going after the melody. And uh, so, you know, one can say that, you know, really there are those two or three broad approaches, but they do intersect. And they're, they're great players deep in the Ozarks that sound like, you know, they live in North Missouri and vice versa. So these are broad generalizations that can very easily be, you know, aired out, you know, by multiple examples that, that break the generalization. Uh, but it is interesting to... I think to sort of look at these broad patterns, when you do that, interesting ideas occur to you. For example, in the, the older Little Dixie style in Central Missouri, where those people come from, they're in ethnically they might be very much the same as Ozark people, except they aren't. They're largely English, you know, Scotch Irish uh, from you know, Kentucky mainly, but then North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia. However, the Little Dixie people came a little bit earlier, and they came from what we call the bluegrass part of those, you know, of Kentucky and the the Tennessee Valley, and Tidewater and Piedmont, Virginia, and North Carolina, whereas the Ozarks folks came just a little bit later, and they predominantly came from the mountainous parts of those states, what we call Appalachia or the Blue Ridge. Now, historically, linguistically, culturally, and politically, those are different people. Although if you visit with them, they might appear to be just exactly the same people. And you can, I think, hear that in their fiddle playing. Uh, if you care to listen at it, listen in that way. <laughs> so I can, I think it's fun to, uh, and interesting to sort of propose a little broader 
suggestions, you know, about the further background of these folks, you know, and the Little Dixie people are what we're going for when we're going for that melody and that a little bit more hornpipey sound is we're actually relating more to Scotland and particularly the lowlands of Scotland than we are to, you know, modern, you know, this Ozark Appalachian style. So, you know, do... <laughs> do, do do the fiddlers themselves make these same distinctions? No. No. Uh, any fiddler here, though, will immediately tell tell you where you're from after you play. Uh-huh. Even if uh, they're not academics. Right. I'm just an average fiddle player, not academics. I was down in West Plains, which is, you know, about a baseball throw from the Arkansas line, deep in the Ozarks. Just got back last night, played at a, at a festival there, did a, a workshop, and Inevitably, somebody will say, say you, you must be from up around Columbia or up there in North Missouri. You sound like one of those hornpipe fiddlers. Now, that's an interesting thing for somebody to say to you. Uh, this is another fiddler who said that, you know. But people have been saying this to me since the 1960s when I first started recording people in the Ozarks. They'd say, oh, you're from up there, up in the north. And that's the first time, you know, late 1960s, I began to think about what are they saying? <laughs> what are they saying? <laughs> and then I begin to listen and think that, you know, there is a broad distinction that can be made. And uh, and it does work. You know, like every stereotype and every generalization, I think, does have an element of, you know, archaeological fact at the bottom of it. So, so although you did create these genres academically, the people, the the the, the the fiddlers do recognize these things. I mean, they're... they're I, yeah. I think the fiddlers who are really, you know, deep into it, you know, beyond book two of Suzuki or the latest fiddle contest, they do understand these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of north versus south in a way. Um, you know, just the two approaches to, uh, to living are expressed in a way and, you know, broad stroke how they think about fiddle playing. But... Uh, you know, one can go too far in that kind of generalization too. So, uh-huh. um, uh huh. Well, speaking of North versus South, as a transition, we can jump all the way to Chapter Six and and sure. the importance of one Missouri, Missouri's role in the Civil War and and fiddling during the Civil War. Well, that, about- that's a, that's a great question, Matt. Good a good subject. Um, Missouri had an important geographical spot at that time because, like as we said, and everybody knows, it was the the passageway to the West, particularly in the 1850s and 60s. You know, it was the the funnel. And uh, when the war broke out, you know, one of Lincoln's uh, President Lincoln's uh, great concerns is that the Federals somehow get control of the Missouri River because that would if they could do that, that would effectively lock down the flow of support uh, for the Confederacy up and down the Missouri River all the way out, you know, literally to Montana and beyond. And if they could get that done, you know, that was one of Lincoln's first priorities in the war, his plans. Um, and I don't think very many people would either believe that or know that, but, but that's so. And one of, therefore, one of the, the very first important engagements in the entire Civil War was a little bitty half-hour skirmish in Boonville, Missouri, when 
three steamboats full of St. Louis Germans arrived with uh, cannons and new rifles and chased the, chased the rebels off and therefore grabbed control of the Missouri River, which they kept throughout the war, which kept, you know, materials from going up and down the river and support. And, and the economy was, of course, you know, driven by the hemp and tobacco trade, so they began to shut down the ability of the Missouri Confederates making a living. They could no longer get their their products to New Orleans to market and so on and so forth. So this little half-hour skirmish at Boonville became a very big deal, though very few people realize it, in the total outcome of the whole Civil War. Um, it, it you know just ended, in effect, the Civil War that would have developed in the western United States. As you know, uh, being from Utah, had that not happened. There was certainly activity in the far west, but nothing like full-scale war it would have been if the rivers had stayed open. So anyhow, um, the Civil War, you know, lots of great music. We've already mentioned Listen to the Mockingbird, which is a, you know, a sentimental ballad, you know, composed uh, during the Civil War and uh, a tune that immediately went into the fiddler's repertoire and was played throughout the war. Excuse me. And it's one of those two or three tunes that the armies tried to suppress and tried to ban in ordering troops not to sing this at camp at night. You know, if you you sang, listen to the mockingbird, and you listen to the words, you'd get real sad and unhappy and probably <laughs> not feel like getting up tomorrow morning and trying to murder your brother across the river and wearing a different uniform. So uh, it was a terrible, terrible time in history, and... Uh, a lot of the folks who actually had to pull the trigger trying to kill their cousins weren't that enthusiastic about it. And uh, music was so important at that time um, that, you know, these tunes were actually suppressed. A lot of other tunes, you know, came out of the war. And another important thing about the Civil War is uh, the emphasis on composed military marches, you know, that, you know, the martial music became very important. Every regiment you know, they could afford it, you know, hired a band. Uh, Yankee regiments actually could hire bands from Connecticut and put them in a uniform and have them play for eight months, and then they, they're they done. They go home, you know, to Connecticut. Uh, rebel regiments didn't have that luxury, but every outfit had a band of some kind, and within that band there was uh, typically somebody playing the banjo and the fiddle, and at night they would, you know, play for dances while the next morning maybe the whole regimental band would play for, for marching and, you know, making threatening noises across the tree, across the creek at the enemy um, with their, uh, you know, tubas and brass horns recently brought from Germany. So it's a great time in the history of, of uh, music and its evolution because a lot of interesting things began to come out, you know, and, and people who had never seen... Uh, a clarinet, never heard of a clarinet, would see a clarinet and say, hey, can you play Soldier's Joy on that? And sure enough, they could play Soldier's Joy on the clarinet. However, you might start have to play it in E-flat or B-flat or something to get along with the clarinet player. But a lot of cross-fertilization between, you know, different levels of music, you know, high and low and everything else that happened during the Civil War and People came back from the Civil War with a lot of interesting music and dances that they'd never seen or heard before, and then suddenly 
became part of, you know, every community across the country. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting kind of complicated uh, story to tell, but it's, I think it's quite a lot of fun thinking about it. I, I'm going to back up now to Chapter 5, and um, specifically uh, Jenny Lind. It, the, the story of Jenny Lind seems to be the one person that comes closest to being what we might think now as you know a pop star in this genre. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Jenny Lind. We first want to be sure everybody understands we're talking about Jenny Lind, L-I-N-D, and not the Bill Monroe tune called Jenny Lind. That's completely mm. different. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny Lind, you know, the Swedish nightingale, was this amazing uh, female opera star, born in Sweden, and, and had a very difficult life, uh, raised in an orphanage, and uh, but uh, uh, a charismatic uh, uh, young lady who became a, uh, really, as you say, a pop star singing light opera and popular songs and even traditional ballads at concerts across Europe, uh, you know, the great places in Vienna and Paris uh, uh, and uh, uh, Milan, you know, playing these uh, big venues and became so famous that, uh, you know, eventually a tune was named for her, Jenny Lynn Polka. But it's kind of an interesting part of that story that the polka is one of those dances that came over with German-speaking people, mainly, to America, but it came over in a kind of a strange way because at that time, certain, you know, there's no Germany in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. It's just all these little kingdoms with, you know, uh, dictators and armies trying to, you know, rule Europe. There's no Germany yet, so all, it's just all these little fiefdoms. And the polka, we think, actually uh, came from what we now think of as uh, the Czech Republic, north, uh, northern, uh, northwestern Bohemia. And uh, I, tr- I try to make a long story short, but uh, the polka was very popular after some of these German-speaking and Czech people came to this country. And it was a tune, and a tune type and a dance. That, uh, the dance was taught in in uh, dancing schools in very fancy places in New York and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. And a New York dancing master named uh, Alan Dodworth, who was very popular and had his own orchestra and got paid a lot of money for teaching wealthy people how to, how to do the polka, uh, heard this tune uh, and heard about Jenny Lynn, uh, wrote the tune down, and named it after her, called it Jenny Lind Polka. It was published in the 1840s. And then uh, a little bit later, after the tune became very popular, uh, enter the great P.T. Barnum. You know, the Circuses. Guy, the great circus uh, <laughs> impresario <laughs> who had the museum with the Fiji mermaid and the, you know, the alligator boy and all these wild, fake, you know, things. Uh, but was a master at marketing. I think people in graduate school should go back and study how P.T. Barnum did what he did. Uh, he made a fortune uh, uh, promoting things, and his methods were quite interesting. Anyway, he heard about Jenny Lind and decided he would bring Jenny Lind to America to tour, and in 1851 he did bring her here, and I think he paid her 
I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars in advance in 1850 dollars. That would be, I don't know, certainly a million dollars today, I suppose. And uh, she toured all of the, the high spots in the in the Northeast, you know, the Philadelphia, Boston, New York circuit, but other places in that area and down down the East Coast, I think maybe to Charleston and Miami, and then in 18... Uh, 51 and 52, a big place to perform was Havana, Cuba. So she performed in Havana, Cuba with P.T. Barnum as her manager. Came back across to New Orleans and on a steamboat coming up the Mississippi River, I think they probably had a conversation, something like, well, we could go on up to Cincinnati or is there anything on the other side of this river that where we could perform? And in talking about 1852, the answer was usually no. Uh, you know, what's across the Mississippi River in 1852? Nothing, you know, a bunch of French guys scraping around, you know, in the iron lead mines, you know, and, you know, maybe, a, uh, you know, a few little settlements, settlements of, uh, you know, whiskey-making Kentucky hillbillies, but what else could be, you know, maybe a few rich people, the slaves growing tobacco, but where, where could we perform? And there was one place in St. Louis that was nice enough uh, for Jenny Lynn to perform, and I think there was nothing west of there until you got maybe to San Francisco or maybe Santa Fe, New Mexico. There was no hall grand enough or suitable for Jenny Lynn in 1850. So in other words, she played her furthest west performance was St. Louis in 1852. It was a sellout, and they sold everything you can imagine, you know, kid gloves, uh, Jenny Lynn earrings, uh, uh, special uh, dishes, you know, silverware, every kind of possible gimmick you could think of, including furniture. And so today you still see Jenny Lind beds, baby beds, and other furniture. And it was just a tremendous thing. And people still, to get around to the point of this, man, one of the points. If you look at the original sheet music from Alan Dodworth, which you can find online, 1842 or 44, something like that, it was a five or six part real complicated polka uh, in E flat or something like that. But if you take away the, the unnecessary parts and you boil it down to the two principal parts and put her over in the key of D or A, you have Jenny Lynn polka almost note for note the way old-time fiddlers play it today. Mm. And to me, that's a phenomenal thing, that it's one of those tunes that, like I was saying with Sally Gooden and Soldier's Joy, that catches on in people's imagination, and it's still played almost the same way, you know, almost a couple hundred years later. Uh, it's quite interesting process of uh, the continuation of an interesting melody. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we have practically no polkas in Missouri unless you go to St. Louis into the Bohemian community where you'll have hundreds of them, but the old-time fiddler only knows two or three polkas in Missouri. Uh, maybe in your country, I know in South Dakota and Wisconsin, fiddlers can probably play 50 or 200 polkas, but we're just not polka people here in Missouri out in the countryside. So this is one of only two or three polkas that we still play here. And... Uh, some people have different titles for it, but it's uh, it's still a, a great tune, and we still play it, you know. 
and it's all so, due to Jenny Lynn, the Swedish Nightingale. So at, at an at an old time fiddler's gathering, could someone yell out the Jenny Lind polka and somebody could play it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah since bluegrass became so popular, and the great maestro of bluegrass, uh, Kenny Baker, recorded it. He recorded it under the title Heel and Toe Polka, which actually describes kind of how the dance goes. So once you hear that and get that title in your head, you might want to say it. But some people call it Heel and Toe Polka. You know, and, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. You know, right. so, now this is only fiddlers of, I think, deeper wells of repertoire. This wouldn't be the average fiddle camp kid or Suzuki student. You know, but this is people of some... Um, some maturity and some depth or just who are interested in the whole story and not just what gets them through a fiddle contest. Fiddle camp kids. Yeah. <laughs> which um, are great things, which are great things. I'm, I'm sure they're fabulous, <laughs> absolutely. Um, there's a lot that I'm going to skip over for, sure. in, in the interest of time, but let's move up to the 20th century and tell us a bit about Chapter 10 and the influence of, of ragtime and jazz and, and how that is how fiddle playing now sounds because of ragtime and jazz. Sure, sure. Well, you know, Missouri is one of the hotbeds in the evolution of ragtime. A lot of the early important compositions were composed here uh, by white and by black musicians and published in St. Louis, which in, was a, an important publishing uh, place until New York and Chicago took over. But uh, uh, you get ragtime becoming important around 1900, mainly through piano players, uh, but also through marching bands. Uh, people don't realize how many rags were composed for marching bands in the John Philip Sousa style. And, uh, you know, we still play some of those uh, tunes as fiddle tunes. And uh, But the, the, the Scott Joplin sort of rag, which people identify with Missouri and the history of ragtime, is what you would call a, what I would call it, <laughs> a classical rag, excuse me, <clears throat> which is so complicated in so many parts and so weird. No fiddler, you know, you know short of, you know, Paganini, I guess, uh, you know, or Mark O'Connor would even care to play it. Uh, so the rags that caught on with fiddle players were what I call country rags, uh, which have the essential rag chord progression, uh, changing chords. Uh, it could be the complete circle of fifths, or it could be just the two chord, which I call the rag chord. Some old-timers would call the circus chord, which is a tip-off that, oh, it's going to be a, an old rag. And there are essentially two steps, you know, foxtrots to dance to, to do the two-step to. And uh, they involve a lot of uh, swing fiddling that would be, become important in the 20s and 30s, and a lot of early jazz. But uh, the tunes that in ragtime that were published that really stuck were those country rags that were, I don't know, you, I guess you could say they were simplified, perhaps they were, but they had a melody that would stick in people's heads and uh, continue playing them. And we still, you know, we have some of those today. Um, a really great example of that, just for one that probably everybody knows, is the tune Red Wing, which, you know, was a Tin Pan Alley composed song, 1908 or so, uh, and is a rag uh, and has words to it. It was a great popular piece of sheet music that every, you know, piano bench 
you know, had a copy of it in every parlor in the world in, in 1915. But Red Wing is such a great tune that Fiddler's kind of took it over, but it does have that rag chord in it uh, if you know about it and choose to put it in. But it's one of those early rags that stuck with the fiddlers and uh, still, you know, you can hear people play. At any jam session in Missouri, somebody's going to play, usually they're going to play Red Wing. Although many people think of it now as a kind of a perfunctory, simplistic tune, it really isn't <laughs> uh, if you choose to play it. I don't know whether that is your answer or not. But, uh, well, did, did, did you get to the, the jazz part of that, too? Well, the early, early, you know, my book tries its best to, to slow down and quit in the 1920s. Uh, but you can't help, you know, imply the future if you quit in the 1920s. But that's when it gets really interesting, you know, with dancing and, and uh, fiddling, you know, because of, you know, the introduction not only of, of real jazz through the fiddling of particularly Joe Venuti, and his guitarist, Eddie Lang, where you get some amazing uh, new guitar stuff going on that uh, others would be imitating until the present time, June 2013. Still trying to figure out what those guys did in 1929, 28, whenever that record was put out. But that music, you know, the swinging jazz music kind of pulls out of ragtime, some of the ragtime sensibilities and kind of blends together with old-time dance tunes. And uh, that leads into the 1930s where you get, you know, full-blown big band jazz. That's another another uh, category. And then you get Western swing evolving out of that. Uh, so, But the roots of all that stuff, you know, are, are seen in even in the 19th century in, uh, in a lot of military marches as well as old-time, you know, piano rags, and the fiddle repertory uh, expresses some of that. You know, we play some jazz tunes today that, you know, people, uh, you know, played in the 1920s and 1930s, and uh, most of it we don't, but most old-time fiddlers will play one or two tunes that might actually come from those jazz composers, and often they don't realize it or, or, or care. Why should they care? But, but uh, you know, there are intimations of today's uh, old-time fiddling and all these crevices, you know, of early music, you know, from the uh, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. So so what is the, the health of old-time fiddling today, Howard? Is it, is it still going strong? I think, yeah, it's going great, you know. Uh, we love to say, particularly we, as we get older, we, always say, we love to say, Nobody can play it anymore, you know, and all the old-time fiddlers are dead. And I've been hearing that since I was 15 years old. I'm, I'm 68 now. I've been hearing that a long time, and I've begun to realize that, realize that that is actually a, represents almost a philosophy of life, that I'm the last guy that really knows how to play Sally Good, me. And when I'm dead, nobody will be playing it right. That's just part of the whole world of fiddling, that we always assume that Grandpa played it better, or that whatever our favorite fiddler was in 1950, maybe it was Tommy Jackson or Howdy Forrester, played it better than we can. But it isn't true. You know, each generation shapes the music and carries it on. Old tunes do die out if people don't play them. 
That is true. So over time, who knows how many millions of tunes quit being played because nobody bothered to learn it before Uncle Bill kicked the bucket. That just happens. But the music, I think this kind of music will always be here. It'll just, it just does change a little bit as time passes. But that's a good thing. I mean, it's like language changes. Uh, you know, culture does not mm-hmm. stand still, and it can't stand still. And, and obviously over the last hundred years with recording and now, of course, with everything on, on the Internet, and uh, people can go back and find tunes that haven't been played for 50 or 60 years and, and bring them back. It's a great part of the era we live in, I think. I, I agree, Matt. That's a tremendous thing about today that folks didn't have in earlier generations. And I've seen that, and you have too, you know, people getting tunes off of YouTube. And it, it's a great thing that people are rediscovering and bringing tunes back, either through old recordings reissued on CD or, you know, YouTube, old video of somebody, and, or brand-new YouTube presentations by, you know, young fiddlers who are creating tunes. So in a way, we have more access. We certainly have more access to music worldwide than we've ever had. And in a way, it's going to be, a, if there's any problem in it, it's a problem of realizing and kind of trying to remember where this comes from, this tune I've got. Because, you know, you'll hear somebody in Missouri play a tune that they got off of YouTube from someone playing in, let's say, North Carolina, and they'll say, I got this old tune, and they start playing it, and it's not a Missouri tune, quote-unquote. Well, mm. not right now. <laughs> But if that person starts playing it and it catches on 25 years from now, if it's still around, it will be a Missouri tune. That's just how it works. So, But I'm just, as a historian and an archaeologist, you could say, and a folklorist, you know, my, my predilection is to try to keep track of things as they change and move along, you know, the chessboard of time. Mm-hmm. And finally, Howard, you've mentioned it a few times, but uh, it's fabulous that you include this CD with the book, how how did that come about? At what point in writing did you realize uh, it'd be great to put a CD in? Well, I've been planning a CD for ten years, and kind of accumulating a wish list of people I could have on it. And uh, the CD was part of the concept of the book from the get-go uh-huh. because how can you do this book, you know, without examples of fiddlers you talk about and different kinds of tunes, <clears throat> excuse me, and different kinds of styles. I do want to say, Matt, that that's not Marshall's top ten fiddlers. That's not what that CD is supposed to do. Yes, it has a, has a few of my, quote, favorite, unquote, fiddlers that I've known through the years, but I tried to get as many different styles as I could together to kind of represent, you know, the earlier, the early times of Missouri fiddling. And to some extent, I think I did succeed in that. There will be a few surprises of fiddlers that people have heard about but never heard a recording of, and uh, some obscure fiddlers that, you know, people have never heard of, and they will know now, and there are a few, you know, world-famous Missouri fiddlers on there who are known already through their recordings and maybe their fiddle contest championships. So it's uh, meant to be a sampler, you know, just to kind of suggest uh, what's out there. Mm-hmm. Well, um, as a... As I said a bit earlier, we, there's a lot in your book we didn't cover in, in our interview. We didn't talk about the role of, of, of African-Americans in 
fiddle playing or Native Americans or Thomas Jefferson or Lewis and Clark or <laughs> a, a lot of these people. I, I'll encourage our listeners to actually go out and, and read the book to find find out about this. So um, thank you very much, Howard, for being on the show. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate it very much. Good uh-huh. to talk to you. You've been listening to a conversation with Howard White Marshall about his book, Play Me Something Quick and Devilish, Old Time Fiddlers in Missouri, published by the University of Missouri Press in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. Thank you for listening. <laughs>